Hey everyone, I'm Amy Barajas and this is the NICU Family, a podcast dedicated to families that are going through the NICU experience. Through this podcast, I hope you find support, community, and hope by connecting you to other families that have been in your shoes. Hey NICU Family, welcome back to today's episode. Today our guest is Christina and she will be telling us the story of Charlotte. Christina is a colleague of mine, and I'm really excited to hear how her baby has pushed against all odds and is growing into a beautiful little girl. So welcome, Christina. How are you? Thank you. I'm well, thank you. And yourself? I'm doing good. So before we get started, I want you to tell us a little bit about you and your family. Okay. Um, I'm Christina. I've been married to my husband for a year and a half, a little over a year and a half. Um, We have our Charlotte. She's 10 and a half months. Um, I'm a marriage and family therapist. I work with school-aged kids and their families, and my husband works for Kroger Distribution. Nice. Okay, so let's start at your pregnancy. Did you have any complications that gave you an indication that you were going to have a baby in the NICU, or was it a surprise? Uh, No. So I had hyperemesis um, for like six and a half months. (laughs) So it was, it was pretty rough. I was really sick. Uh, but that's like a familial thing. Nothing else in the pregnancy. Um, I didn't have any complications. And then we found out at 32 weeks that, um, her heart wasn't fully formed. And so at that point they referred us to a, um, fetal cardiologist that they could do, um, like a specific ultrasound of her heart. And at that point is when they gave us the diagnosis that she had hypoplastic right heart uh, with uh, pulmonary atresia, which basically means that her right ventricle wasn't formed, but also her pulmonary valve wasn't formed. And they weren't seeing any flow on the entirety of the right side of her heart. So her left ventricle was just, it, it was doing everything on its own. Oh, okay. So basically only one half of the heart is working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, working. exactly. So it's hypoplastic, which means it's extra small. Um, and so her right ventricle is too small to have any sort of function, which is why the pulmonary valve also didn't form because that's where it would get the, like the blood flow. And so that mm-hmm. the entirety of her heart just didn't form at all. Wow. And so that happened at 32 weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, your dad, right, is yes. <laughs> a heart surgeon, right? Uh, he's a cardiologist, yeah, for Cardiolo- adults. Sorry, cardi- mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Yeah. So when they told you this, did you understand it or did you have to, like, get – because I know when I was in NICU, the doctors would tell me things and I would be like, what? okay, what <laughs> are you talking about? So I would have to go home and do my research, but you had your dad there. Did that make it easier to understand or because it seems like it's a lot of information. Oh, yeah, it's definitely a lot. Like we had the doctor, the original doctor uh, who diagnosed her, he he gave us a diagram. And so he drew like the functioning of a heart and like what a, what a regular heart looked like and what her heart looked like. And at that point, they didn't know like how severe it was going to be. But I remember after that appointment, um, my husband and I were driving home and I called my dad uh, and I just I just was falling like I just cried my eyes out and so and I told him what the diagnosis was and you know dad's just one of those people like (laughs) he doesn't really get emotional about things so he just he told me he was like 
all right, that's what it is. We'll get through it. And that's kind of how we did it. We just took things in stride and we got through it. And then he actually set us up with a doctor at CHLA. Um, and cause he wanted a second opinion, of course. So we went and got a second opinion and they did another high depth, um, or in-depth ultrasound of her heart. And that doctor gave us a lot more details. So, um, you know, that, that was really hard. He, he basically said that she wasn't like, she might not be expected to live, um, that she might have to do a surgery right away. And, uh, talking about like, so he, he basically prepped us that she was going to be in the NICU for quite a while. Um, so we kind of had that knowledge going into it. And, but because of that, we got set up to deliver at Kaiser sunset in LA. Um, and if we hadn't have done that, she probably wouldn't have survived. So it's, it was such a blessing that we found out when we did, because we were able to like make those plans to, to prepare for her. Okay. So the, the Kaiser that you were supposed to deliver at did not have an NICU. No, they don't. They have a pediatric NICU, but they don't have like the, they have a PICU, but they don't have the NICU. So, um, and they don't have the NICU with yeah. the high level of experience. So we could have gone to Fontana, but they have, because they have a level two NICU, but the Kaiser Sunset has a level three and they're associated with CHLA. And that's where like Kaiser doc, the Kaiser doctor works at CHLA and he does all like the fetal or like the, um, the neonatal surgeries for cardio. So, and they were anticipating having her like be born and then taking her immediately for surgery, but that didn't happen. Okay. So how did you and your husband handle everything after um, emotionally? Cause it's one thing to be like, okay, this is what's going to happen. So how did you handle that? And how did, were you able to just process all of that? you know, we just kind of took it day by day. And like, some days were easier than others. Um, you know, like the day that actually we found out about her diagnosis, we had our, we had scheduled our maternity photos. And so we were thinking like, you know, maybe we shouldn't go and do those. Like, cause we were both really sad, but we decided, you know what, we're going to go and celebrate her. Cause we don't know how long we're going to have her. So wow. we went and we did it. And that's just kind of how we got through it. Like, some days, you know, he was really depressed and sad about it. And I stepped up and was there for him. And some days I couldn't get out of bed because I was really upset, like and crying and, you know, depressed and stuff. And, and he stepped in. So we just kind of leaned on each other. And like, I don't, I couldn't have gotten through it without him, honestly. So yeah, I, I love hearing that, that not only were you getting the support from him, but you were also helping support dad because you know, I feel like dads sometimes get left out of the equation when it comes to emotional support and it comes to NICU babies. And I just think that it's pretty amazing to be able to really have a team effort in leaning yeah. on each other. So I, I love that. Yeah. She, I mean, he was, he was amazing. And like, even now my, my daughter is obsessed with him. It's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. So, um, how far along were you when you gave birth? Okay, so I was induced at um, my my 40-week date. So I was induced on a Sunday, and then I um, I went in for induction on a Sunday, and then I didn't have her until Tuesday morning. So that was 
rough. <laughs> so basically, I went in and I was one centimeter dilated and 50% effaced. And so they told me, well, we don't want to give you induction meds. Like we want to see like how you progress naturally. Like, okay. But um, so they didn't give me the actual like induction meds like Pitocin until Monday, I think Monday morning-ish, like maybe late af- like late morning. And so after that, like I started progressing and everything like that looked fine. Her heart rate looked good. Um, you know, there was, there was no real complications until I started pushing. And then um, they had me pushing for four hours and she hadn't come out yet. Um, so I developed a fever. Like I, I remember sitting in like in between contractions. I remember looking at the nurse like at maybe hour, like maybe after the first hour and was like, I don't really feel that great. Like I feel warm. And so she took my temperature and it was at a 99. So it was like, okay, you're okay. Um, and then like they kept having me push, 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 but her shoulder was stuck on my tailbone. So they like, she just wasn't coming out. My husband could see her head and like see her hair basically, but she wasn't coming out. And at the fourth hour, um, I, I told them I really don't feel good. And it's not just from pushing, like I don't feel good. So they took my temperature again and it was at 101. So it was at that point that they were like, this is an emergency, is not an emergency, but we're going to have to do a C-section. And I remember thinking, okay, then why, why, why are you telling me that it's not an emergency? Like clearly it is, but they took me in to get the C-section and that was like traumatizing in itself because um, they had to redo the epidural three times, which I don't know if you had an epidural, but that's not fun. No, it's not. Especially if you can feel the contractions like, yeah. how am I going to stitch right. this? <laughs> right. Back? Yeah. So they, um, they had to redo the epidural the first time, but then they put it in wrong apparently because I had like a metallic taste in my mouth. And so, oh my yeah, so they pulled it out for the second time. And then they put it back in um, and they just had to kind of keep dosing me because I wasn't getting numb where I was supposed to. So I was sitting there up on the table, like trying to hold myself up, but I couldn't feel my legs. <laughs> I like had no way to brace myself. So they finally got it. Um, they brought my husband in and I was like shaking. I was so cold. So they put like warming blankets over me. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then I remember asking like, okay, when are you going to make the incision? And the doctor looked up and was like, oh, we already started. <laughs> I was like, great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, I honestly couldn't tell you how long that took. I was not in a place to be telling time. Um, but I remember them saying the baby's out. And I looked over at Garrett, my husband, and I was like, I didn't hear her cry. And then the anesthesiologist came over immediately and was like, do you want some relaxing meds? And, <laughs> and I looked at her like, yup. So she gave me some relaxing meds. I don't know what they were. And I knocked out. Like, I don't remember anything after that until I remember waking up in the recovery room and this doctor's like standing over me, but I couldn't even like fully see his body. I just like kind of saw a floating head. And then I know that he was standing there talking to my husband. And then my dad was, was there talking to him and I honestly had no idea what was going on. And then they finally wheeled me into the NICU to see Charlotte. Um, and we, we have a, one of the NICU nurses was amazing. And she took a picture of that for us. But, you know, I, I had no idea everything that had happened to my baby for like, I don't know, maybe three days. 
like they really so you you were out for three days um no I wasn't out out for three days like for the rest of that particular day because she was born at like two in the morning on Tuesday and so for that like the rest of the day I have no idea what I have no idea what happened um but they didn't tell me the full story of what had actually happened to her until they were getting ready to discharge me so what did happen to her after she was born so after she was born they did the Apgar um and she like she wasn't really responsive um and so they they were they revitalized her a little bit and then I think her Apgar score was a seven after that but then 20 minutes after she was born her heart failed and she coded for 10 minutes which is a long long time so um they were thank thank god they were able to resuscitate her um so they brought her back but they had to intubate her and like they put a cold pack on her to preserve the brain function they had an eeg monitor on her so um yeah, like they in the EEG monitor wasn't showing any brain activity at all. So they basically told us that she wasn't expect like they weren't expecting her to live. Um, the NICU social worker came in and gave us some information on um, like funeral arrangements and and like talking about having pictures done before she passed away and all of this stuff, um, <laughs> which you know when you're still recovering from a C-section. And like you still have medication in you that you're not completely aware of everything. It it was it was just horrible. Like my husband didn't sleep. I'm pretty sure for like a solid 36 hours. Oh gosh, because he had to take care of you and the baby. Well, we didn't even have the baby in our room. Like I I didn't I didn't get to see my kid for I don't know how long. Um, probably not until like maybe half like the next day. I'm not sure. Um. So yeah, so her heart failed. Um, she she was intubated. So I remember going into the NICU the next day and like I, I couldn't even walk. Like I was in so much pain. So they wheelchair, my husband got a wheelchair for me and they wheeled me in. And I just, I remember sitting there and just like holding her hand. She couldn't at that point, like it was just holding fingers. Like she couldn't, she couldn't even move her hands. Um, just looking at all the monitors that they have in there. Uh, and, you know, having the doctors come over and say she didn't have any activity, um, in her brain, like they were going to see, like they were going to wait the week and, um, see if she improved at all and then go from there. Um, so that, that first week it was, it was pretty rough. It seems like every day they gave us like even worse (laughs) news. Um, but then, you know, it it's amazing because we went home on that Sunday and mind you, we were having to drive from Riverside to LA every day. So on that Sunday, I remember we left to go home and her her NICU team of doctors had said, okay, we're going to have a meeting on Monday to talk about what we want to do. So we were dreading that meeting. Obviously it was, it was terrible. And how long did it take before they started seeing movement on the EEG? Well, when we got in there on that Monday, um, I remember walking in and there were three doctors around her incubator and the neurologist was assessing her. And she was like, she looked at me and I remember she said, this isn't the same kid. She's like, she's moving her hands. And then I remember she opened her eyes briefly. And so 
that was like huge. And the, the EEG still wasn't registering like any activity, but obviously like she did have activity because she was doing stuff. So we went and, um, and we talked to her team and they were like, we were planning, uh, we were planning on having a super terrible meeting and like having to make all these horrible life decisions but we're not going to have to do that anymore. Um, so they were talking about, originally they had talked about extubating her and just letting her pass naturally. But then when we got there on that Monday, they were like, no, we're going to extubate her and see how she does. Um, and so oh they actually, ex- gosh, I'm getting like chills just <laughs> I know it's, how, it's, how amazing. That's a miracle. She is literally a little miracle. And so, and they have no, they still, they have like no idea how she's doing it. Um, so. I remember they extubated her and they were planning on having supplemental oxygen with her. So she had a nasal cannula. Um, And so they kept, I remember they kept lowering the supplemental oxygen, but she was breathing on her own and she opened her eyes for a little bit. And then, you know, she was pretty heavily sedated because she was on um, phenobarbital because, and during that time, um, you know, they had her, they were worried about seizures, which she did, she did start having. Um, so, and that's, now we know that that's probably just because her brain is just more susceptible to them because of the injury that it sustained with not having oxygen for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and then every day after that Monday, she made a little bit of, she made a little improvement and like, they come and they tell us all these like terrible things. And then the next day it seemed like, she do what they told her that she couldn't do (laughs) so So what are some of the things that the terrible things that they told you that she was able to do um they well first of all they told us that she wasn't gonna live so she did that (laughs) and and then they told us that she wasn't gonna be able to breathe on her own she did that um then they told us that she wasn't going to be able to um like she wasn't really going to have like brain function basically. And she definitely has that. Uh, then after the next couple of weeks, um, she, they told us that she wasn't going to be able to eat on her own. And she did that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Then they told us that she was going to have to have supplemental oxygen forever. And she doesn't need that. Um, they took off the nasal cannula and she did amazing. She, she did amazing. So. Um, yeah. And then once they got her, the last thing that she had to do in order to get released from the NICU is she had to be able to eat a certain amount of like from the bottle in a certain time. And I, I should preface that um, they didn't give me the opportunity to breastfeed because they didn't think that she was going to be able to do it. And mm-hmm. so because of that, all my milk dried up because I was mm-hmm. too stressed to pump. Yeah, it's hard. It's so hard. It's it's so hard, you know. And and emotional. Yeah, and emotional, you know. And then I felt bad after. I felt terrible after deciding to stop pumping, just because it it was, it was making me feel worse than it was helping. Honestly, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was hard. Yeah, so she did. So she did formula, and she did fine on the formula. Um, and so she finally was able to eat what they wanted her to eat, and she gained the appropriate amount of weight. And, you know, she's just, it it seems like every day she just makes improvements and, you know, it, it was, it was hard 
for a little bit, but she busted out of the NICU in three weeks after three weeks. And they, they told us that she was going to be in there for months and months and months. Um, like even one of the doctors who we actually got really close to Dr. Reitman, he was amazing. Um, he was the one who did our discharge for us. And so he came in and he was like, how are you, how is she doing this? How are you guys going home already? Like, you can't leave me yet. And it was like, no, we're leaving. We're out of here. <laughs> and so yeah. he, he taught us how to use, um, like how to adjust the car seat for her. Like he sat with us and did the, um, like the sh- you have to do a couple of videos before you leave. I remember, oh my gosh, that, cause we had to drive back from LA, mind you. So it took like two hours. And I remember that was the scariest ride home because I could not physically see my child and I didn't know if she was going to stop breathing and I didn't know like what to do at all. Um, so we, I remember we went over to my parents' house because of course they, you know, they were excited and they wanted to feed us and they wanted to see her. And that was just, that was the start of her being at home and you know, it hasn't been without its complications. Like she struggles with seizures occasionally. And we just, um, now we're actually in the process of weaning off her, her seizure meds to see how she does, which is amazing because it sedates her. And so we want to see what she can do without that. But mm-hmm. so we're in the process of doing that. Um, you know, and she's, she has two teeth. Uh, she, she cut two teeth within a week and like the two bottom teeth. She's still on physical therapy, um, so we do that every other week. So just to be because of the trauma to her brain, um, her muscles tend to get a little tight, and so we just want to be prompting her. Like her legs kick and move, and they're super strong, but her arms, like she kind of tends to tense up with them. So we just we need to stretch them and just make sure that she moves, um, mm-hmm. and which is what this physical therapy does. And she loves her physical therapist. Oh my gosh, he's so sweet. Like he gets her to smile, he gets her to do stuff. And so now um, she's practicing trying to crawl in her own little like scooting kind of a way. <laughs> so she's working on that. Um, she's almost sit- like her core is kind of weak still because of everything, but um, she's almost sitting up pretty much on her own, which is amazing. Like they didn't expect her to be able to do that. Um, and she's, She's growing. She's in the 76th percentile for height. Wow. She's a not, big girl. <laughs> yeah, which is not surprising because my husband is 6'5 and I'm 5'9. So, yeah, you know. Yeah, tall yeah. people. <laughs> um, but she's also in the 60, 63rd percentile for weight. So, you know, she's she's above the curve um, when, you know, they told us, oh, she's going to have she's going to have to have a G-tube. She's not going to she's not going to be able to eat like on her own ever. And she was just like, um, yes, I can. <laughs> yeah, that's so, amazing. It's just, you know, every day, it's just, it's a surprise. Like, she's just happy. Like, she is just living her best life. And, like, you'd never know looking at her that she went through all that. It's just crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's such a miracle. I think, like, the scarier the beginning, the greater it is later on when you see them doing everything. Oh, yeah. And you're like, oh, my gosh, like. I never thought that seeing someone eat would make me so happy. You know? I know. No, I never thought that seeing somebody open their eyes or like hold mm-hmm. my hand or reach for something. Oh my gosh, Amy, we adopted a little kitty because my husband is allergic to dogs. We can't have, we can't have dogs. <laughs> um, but we, we got a, one of our cats 
ran away. And so we wanted to get another cat because I was feeling sad. So <laughs> we went to go to the shelter to go adopt one. And we, we picked out this little fluffy, like teeny, teeny, teeny little kitten. And um, we brought him in the little playroom. And she actually reached out, like reached out her hand and touched her fur. I almost cried. Like that was the first time that she'd really reached out like intentionally for something. And so wow. we adopted him, of course. And he's like obsessed with her. Little Sebastian, he's like obsessed with her. He wants to sleep with her. Um, I really hope people that hear your story get so much hope from that because like me, I'm a, a couple of months behind you, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm like waiting for my baby to start doing these things, like to like reach for things, to start eating and all of that. And knowing that your baby was able to get there, like gives me hope that my baby will get there. You just have to be patient because it's all in their time, you know? Mm -hmm. It is. It is all in their time. And, you know, like people ask like, oh, is she doing this? Is she like, how is she meeting her milestones? Like um, she's meeting her milestones by simply being alive and by Mm -hmm. breathing and doing all of this stuff. Like you can chill. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like let her do her own thing. And a lot, a lot of the things like the physicality, um part of it I really do feel like she knows how to do it it's just exhausting to her so she because you know she only has like half of a heart and so she's like she's curtailing her energy for the things that she really wants to do right right yeah Yeah. and then those seizure medications are just uh, it's so frustrating because you obviously don't want your baby to have seizures but they need this the medication so they won't get any more brain damage so you have to find like this balance where it's like keeping them from getting seizures but not knocking them out because my my baby was asleep forever because he he's also on phenobarb and they're finally weaning him off and changing meds but they're all very like you know like sedatives so they put him to sleep and it's hard to see what their capabilities really are when they're also medicated you know that's been our biggest struggle and Finally, because um, she she'd been without seizures for like seven months, and then she had two within a month. But the first time she had a fever, and so it it was likely due to the rise in temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was thinking it was a febrile seizure, um, and then she had another one, and she ended up having a UTI, which we found out is likely because she's on Lasix for her heart, and so she pees out a lot more water or like a lot more fluids than normal babies. So she sits in it for longer. Mm. So we, we just, we just have to be careful and we change her a lot more often than I think normal babies might be changed. Um, And then the second seizure she had, she had a cold. And again, so she had a low grade fever and she run like her body temperature runs a little bit colder than normal just because she doesn't have as much like flow basically. Mm So, um, so we, we just have to be ahead of that, you know? So we talked to her neurologist and she was like, oh no, like those aren't febrile seizures. Those are actual seizures. And so now we need to, we still need to keep the phenobarb. And I was like, no. So I, we advocated for our kid and we we're like, no, like we want her to be on something that's not going to sedate her because how are you going to see what she's going to do if she's knocked out? Like, <laughs> I mean, she takes her phenobarb at night. She wakes up in the morning groggy. Like, no, I'm not doing this. So she appeased us. And so we, she started Kepra, which mm-hmm. is not a barbiturate. And so it's not, it doesn't sedate her as much. Oh, so that's, yeah. Uh, it's so funny because uh, my baby Luke, he started on Kepra this past Monday as well. 
because he started having myoclonus. Like he started like like doing like jolts and we didn't know what they were. And they were like a couple in one hour, like more than 10. And I was starting to think that there might be like infantile spasms. So they put Mm -hmm. us on Keppra as well, but he's weaning off of phenobarb. Mm -hmm. So he's on both right now. So he's still a little... Yeah, kind of getting through that, but yeah, and so and so is she, and she had a bunch of seizures like in February and March. Um, so her dose for phenobarb was up at eight and a half. So it was a wow, yeah, it was a lot. And so now, um, that we've started weaning her off of it, she's down to four, and so she'll be uh, four mLs at night. So she should be completely off the phenobarb by the end of January. Nice. Nice. I know. So, and she'll still be on the Keppra, but the Keppra is only one and a half ml. So it's not mm-hmm. like a big deal. Yeah. Um, you know, and so we're hoping to eventually get her off of that too. Cause you know, my gut reaction, like my parent, my parental intuition, I don't think my kid has epilepsy and that's what her neurologist is saying. I don't think she has epilepsy. I really don't. I, I feel like the two seizures that she had most recently, those were actually febrile seizures. Um, because I had febrile seizures when I was a kid and they're, oh. they're due to a you know, a, a heightened temperature. And what are, what are febrile uh, seizures? Can you explain that? Cause I don't know what it is. I don't know the difference okay. between them. Sure. Okay. So febrile seizures are, they're the type of seizures that happen with kids who do not have an underlying epileptic disorder. So, but what happens is like if a kid is sick, for example, like when I was three, I had a febrile seizure. Because I was sick and my temperature rose to a high level. I think it was like 104 or something. So it was really, really high. And because of that, my brain, like your brain, like it doesn't know what to do with itself because it's getting too hot. So it misfires. And so that's what the seizure is. It's like it's basically all of your neurotransmitters firing all at the same time. And so that's why you twitch and that's why your eyes kind of roll. And and some people, you know, have the grand mal seizures, which are huge and big. And some people have the petite mall where they're kind of just like twitching and shaking. Um, so that's what a febrile seizure is. It's based, it's related to a rise in te- a seizure due to a rise in temperature with a kid who does not have an underlying epileptic disorder. Regular seizures or seizures like who have petite mall or grand mall or whatever, those are those are assigned to seizure or kids who do have an epileptic disorder. Um, so that it, it's just so you either have epilepsy or you you have a febrile seizure. So they're they're just qualified differently. I see. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. So you don't I think really it's don't. due to epilepsy. I really don't. I I honestly don't. Um, because looking back at it now, you know, I'm thinking about in February. Like I I remember specifically the first time that I thought that she had a seizure, and I just I remember her head just kind of like went back and forth real quick. And then she kind of laid her head down and she got tired and I was like, Oh my God, that's a seizure. But, but nobody else witnessed it. It was just me. And then a couple of times later, and so we brought her into the ER and they did all, um, they did all the, uh, the tests and stuff and her phenobarb levels came back below the therapeutic level, which means they came back below the level that it needs to be at to, to maintain homeostasis. So where, where she should be at. Um, so they gave her, um, um, they gave her, a, that's what it is. They gave her a bolus 
which is basically like a concentrated version or form of her medication to like get her back up to that level. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it it could have been a seizure. I don't, I don't know. I just, epilepsy. mm -mm, I don't, I think her brain is just sensitive because Mm -hmm. she's been through a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, but the the seizures that she had two months ago, they were they were just different, and that and that's why I don't really feel like it's epilepsy because they were just different. Like the ones that she had back in February, they were short. They were like maybe like five ten seconds, and it was just kind of like her shaking briefly, and that was it. But the ones two months ago, they were like a full on minute. She like twitched, like her eyes were like going up and down. She was making noises with her like with her vocal cords and then she was like dead of the world out of it so that that was definitely a seizure those two were definitely seizures um but they they were different and they were more pronounced yeah yeah and she had a fever both times you know Mm -hmm. but whatever we'll see she's gonna do what she's gonna do and we're gonna be off of phenobarb in january and when she turns one um which i can't believe and then oh we're just, I know we're just going to try to get her off the Keppra as soon as we can. Um, but my biggest advice when it comes to something like that, you know, like your intuition is everything. Like your doctors know a lot, but they don't know your kid. Like they don't know your kid like you do. So it's your job to advocate and it's okay to say no. It's okay to tell your doctor, no, this is not what we're going to do. We're going to try this because at the end of the day, that's your baby. And you know what's best. Yeah, that is so true. That That's is so my true. thought. And it's hard. And, and I, I like that you said that because for parents who have, you know, kids in the NICU or special needs kids, you don't know, like not every normal parent knows so much about like um, medical terminology or anything like that. So sometimes, you know, we as parents do put too much trust in the doctors. Mm-hmm. So I do like that you're pushing for parents to advocate and listen to their own intuition. And I think that as special needs parents, we need to be extra tuned into that intuition because no one knows your kid more than you, you know, like Mm -hmm. my kid does things that are so tiny that any normal person would not notice, but I know that he can see or like he heard me because he did like the tiniest little eye shift that he hadn't mm-hmm. done before. Like I notice those things, but people that don't see him every day and don't take care of him every day are not there and are not their parents don't. So I do think that our intuition is a lot, plays a bigger mm-hmm. role in this kind of situation with special needs kids. So I absolutely agree. <laughs> yeah. So what are some resources that have helped you along the way and some programs um, that you may be involved with? Sure. So, um, right. The resources that we're using right now, obviously are just through Kaiser. So she does physical therapy. She has cardiology. She has neurology. Um, and she did for a little bit, see the, um, the, I don't remember what it was because she was born with, um, hip dysplasia. Mm-hmm. And so like her right hip, was popped out, but she's also gotten through that and that's adjusted itself. So she's, that's nice. no longer the diagnosis. I know it's amazing. She's amazing. Everything they tell her she can't do, she does. So, <laughs> um, you know, that's fine. Um, 
resources, I would say, you know, the NICU social worker, we, we have follow-ups with them. Um, and they are, they're always advocating for us to use Inland Regional Center just because like they come to your house, you know, they, they just, they have a list of resources. So if that's something that you're ready for, I would definitely recommend, you know, giving in the regional center a call just because they do have a lot of resources and they can pair you with people who like you wouldn't even think to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, but also talking to other NICU parents is so helpful. Like I, um, actually one of my coworkers, her niece had a kid who was born with hypoplastic left heart, which is the same diagnosis my kid has just on the left side. And after talking with her, like she, she actually had a couple of ideas for who I should talk to, to like go and get a second opinion or something, you know? So yeah. And so her kid has actually been able to have surgeries. Mine can't, um, mine's not a candidate for any corrective surgeries. So because her heart, the, um, the left front or the right ventricle is too small. So there's just nothing that they can do, which is like the worst thing in the world that you can be told like, yeah, well, you're going to have a good 10, 15 years with your kid and then she's going to start to deteriorate and there's no surgery that can correct it. So, so there can't be any, any transplants or anything like that. Um, she, if she did a transplant, it would have, it would have to be a heart and a lung because she doesn't have the pulmonary valve either. And they could do that, but the longevity of that is not good. It adds like maybe five years on to her lifespan and it's, you know, it, it just, it just isn't good. So her cardiologist was like, you know, it's not really worth putting her through all that when it's not really going to have much benefit for her. Um, And then the surgeries that usually are done with kids with her diagnosis, they can't do because of the severity of her condition. So Mm -hmm. she's, you know, just living her best life, like with her left ventricle, just kind of pumping away and doing what it needs to do, I guess. But they, yeah, they can't tell us how she's doing what she's doing or how she's, made so much progress so I'm just gonna chalk it up to God has a bigger purpose for her and we just gotta be there to support her so that's amazing I mean the fact that you still don't give up hope I think that's huge in in staying positive for your children and then seeing you live that out I think puts a great example as well and talking about that I'm wondering um what helped you get through this whole thing like this whole NICU stay and up to now what has helped you the most you know I think just relying on your support system I, I think it's really it's really interesting honestly because you know I've always had a really good family support like my parents are the most amazing people ever um my brother and his wife and their kids are perfect like they're beautiful um you know my husband's dad has been amazing with showing up and just being present for us. So just, just relying on your, on your support system. It's been really helpful, but also like the people who have come and like sent us cards, like wishing us well, or um, like even like some people like sent little gifts or like they sent a card with a prayer or something like people that I don't even know personally have reached out to my parents to like, get us, like get us a card or well wishes or something like 
you know, your support group is so much bigger than you even think it is. Like, you know, and that, that's probably been the most surprising and amazing thing to me because I, I remember the, and I was told this later, I didn't know this at the time, but right before, right when Charlotte's heart failed, my mom, cause she worked for a Catholic school. So she had texted her coworkers and was like, you know, she's, she's fighting for her life right now. Like she's, they're, they're trying to revive her. And I remember they started a prayer train and once they start, stopped the prayer chain, the doctor came back and said that they were able to resuscitate her. So, like, that works. Like, the prayer chain, God saved my kid. Like, I, I can't, I just can't, like, explain it any better than that. Yeah. So, use, use your resources. Don't be afraid to talk about it. Don't be afraid to ask for help. You know, people want to help. You just don't know how. Right. And so just because somebody isn't reaching out, it doesn't mean they don't care. So, you know, don't be afraid to ask for help. It would be the biggest thing. Um, and that that's honestly what helped me. And then, of course, my husband, like, he's amazing. You know, we just, we just got married. <laughs> so, like, um, we got married in April and Charlotte was born in January. So, <laughs> yeah. So she was a, she was a honeymoon baby. Um, <laughs> um, you know, and I just, I couldn't have done it without him. So just open up to your partner don't shut them out rely on them let them be a rock for you because you you can't nobody can do this alone yeah that's beautiful you're so right I agree 100 percent. all right well thank you so much Christina for sharing your story um where can listeners connect with you if they do want to hear more about your story or if they have questions or they just want to follow along with Charlotte uh Charlotte's development Sure. So I do a monthly post for Charlotte. It's like pretty much the only thing I post on Instagram is just of my kid. Um, Cause that's the only thing people care about. <laughs> but um, So you can definitely follow me on Instagram or I save it on Facebook too. On Instagram, it's um, the real Mrs. Secrets. So it's the underscore real underscore Mrs. Like MRS underscore secrets. Um, and that's Instagram. And then of course on, um, Facebook, you can just search me by my name, Christina Secrets, And then you'll see a really cute picture of when we had, um, newborn photos, but we had newborn photos done at two months because our kid was obviously in the NICU. And so she was a lot more wiggly than <laughs> normal babies are. Um, so, but fun fact. If you have a really fussy baby when you're trying to do photos, turn on a hairdryer. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Like she chilled out when they turned on the hairdryer. It was it was crazy. Like she was fussing and just like annoyed. And then um, our photographer, Teresa, she um, she turned on the hairdryer and Charlotte was just like, okay. She cooled off. But now, <laughs> yeah. But now like when I try to do my hair in the morning, she screams. So it, it doesn't last long. <laughs> <laughs> it's only during the newborn phase. Yeah. Yeah. But if you want to do um, newborn photos and your child is not feeling it, turn on the hairdryer. Works every time. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you so much for everything. I think that little Charlotte is an inspiration and she's she's just a little miracle walking around. God is going to do great things with her. I know it. Um, and you, your family sounds beautiful. And thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I hope, you know, this helps 
somebody get through what they're going through. You guys aren't alone. We're in it together. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And I hope you guys enjoyed hearing it as well. I hope you guys find value and hope in it. Join me again in two weeks to hear another story of a tiny miracle. Until then, stay strong and don't lose hope.